We're in the 18th chapter of Exodus. The people have escaped Egypt. They're in the desert, but problems start. And they're beginning to bring all of their issues and difficulties with one another to Moses. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, a Midianite, comes and finds Moses and sees the long line of people. And he says this, what you're doing is not good. You will wear yourself and your people out. The work is too heavy and you cannot do it alone. So listen to my advice and may God be with you. You will serve as the people's representatives to God and you are to teach the people the instructions and decrees of God. You are to teach them what they are to do and how they are to live and behave. But appoint capable men from all of the people to serve as officials, uh, people who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate dishonest gain, and place them over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and they shall be judges for the people at all times. The difficult matters they will bring to you, but the simpler matters they will decide for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I try to do a fair amount of research uh, for my sermons on Sunday. And most of my time, my research is figuring out what other people have said through the ages about a particular text. But this text was about waiting in line. So I thought I would do some original research. So on Tuesday morning, my son and I got up a little bit after 8 o'clock and left. And we went to Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, Texas. I don't know if you're familiar with Franklin's, but you can always find a line there. Because when they're out of barbecue, they're out. So we got there about 9.20 in the morning, and there were already 50 people in front of us in line. And by the time we made it to the cash register, it was about 12.15. Three hours. Uh, now... The Bible says that people waited in line all day, so I knew my research wasn't over, so we got back in the car, drove to San Antonio, and went to the tax assessor collector's office to stand in line for vehicle registration. I wanted the full experience. But while we were in the line, we tried to justify being in the line. We said things like, well, they're interesting people we're meeting in the line, or by standing here, we're burning more calories than if we were sitting down somewhere, or finally, by the time we get there, we will be hungry. And then I noticed on the news the next night that they talked about the lines at the San Antonio Zoo during spring break. I don't know if you got caught up in the traffic around uh, Hildebrand and, and that area. It was crazy. And so they talked to, to people about having to walk a mile or more to the zoo from where they parked. And then they had to wait in line for an hour. And the same thing, people made excuses and tried to make it seem like it wasn't that terrible. So there was a couple that had come from Austin with their children. And they talked about waiting in line for an hour uh, at the zoo. And they said, well, you know, the good news is we got out of Austin in the zoo that is south by southwest. You know, everybody looking for some reason to justify lines. But the truth of the matter is none of us really like it. If we could do like you can at Disney and pay extra and go to the front of the line, we'd do it. And Jethro doesn't like the lines either. Jethro says to Moses, this isn't working for you. It's not working for anybody else, but I've got a plan. And what amazes me about Jethro's plan is two things. The first one is this, that Moses actually accepts the plan. Because think about it. Jethro is a Midianite, not an Israelite. And he just showed up. 
And so this, here's an outsider bringing you advice when he hadn't even sat through this yet. And Moses accepts it. But more importantly than this, it's his father-in-law. Jethro's an in-law. How many of you willingly receive advice from your in-laws and do it? It's amazing to me. It reminds me of what the Bible said about Moses, that he was the most humble man who ever lived. And you have to be humble and teachable to accept advice from your in-laws who don't even live or in your situation or even familiar with your situation. But Moses does. Sometimes what God wants to do with us in our life and the very words that God wants to speak in our life will come from very unexpected sources, sometimes the least likely person. And it reminds me that we need to live with our antenna up and our, our hearts and our ears open because God may speak to us at any moment. And so we need to be listening for that. But here's the second amazing thing about what goes on with the story. Jethro speaks to a current problem that they were having in their day, long lines with all these disputes, but gives them a solution that not only helps them with the current problem, but actually will help them in the future. Because the solution is this. Moses, you go talk to God and get all the big stuff, which he will do on Mount Sinai, and then appoint people so in your community you can wrestle with what the big stuff looks like in daily life and let them figure it out for themselves. Each community basically will decide for each generation. It's an amazing solution because they don't know it, but in 40 years, Moses is going to be gone. If you want to know what Moses has to say about your situation, you're out of luck. As Christians, we relate. Jesus is no longer walking next to us, telling us and teaching us what to do. So how will we know what to do? And the principle that's laid down is this. You know what to do because you will study the big stuff, the word of God as it comes to Moses, as it comes to to Jesus, And then you will wrestle with it and try to figure it out together with the Holy Spirit what it means in your day. And this principle is very ingrained in the Jewish people by the time Jesus comes along. And they spend a great deal of time and energy trying to figure out what that Bible passage from 1,200 years ago meant in their particular day. They would even back it up with interpretations of stories. Uh, back when we were in Genesis, Dinah preached on uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel. But what the rabbis did is they turned it into an allegory, and they said Jacob stands for Israel, the people of God, because that's what his name becomes. And the angel stands for God's word. And it's only when wrestling with God's word that you get a blessing. You only get it in the struggle. You only get it in the prayer. You only get it in the dialogue and debate, and then the Bible yields blessings to you. Uh, they had another way, uh, another story that they talked about, and this was shortly after Jesus' day. Uh, perhaps the greatest rabbi in all of Judaism outside of Jesus himself was a man named Akiva. And he had hundreds and hundreds of disciples. And the story goes like this. Now, it's a story they made up. This is not in the Bible. And the story is that Moses left the angels in heaven and went to the classroom where Akiva was teaching about the law of Moses. And so hundreds of people were in there debating what it meant for their day. And then Akiva listens for a while, then goes back to heaven. And the angel said, how was it? And, and Moses said, well, I didn't understand the thing they were talking about. And the angel said, well, I'm sorry. And he said, no, no, it was all right. Because the first thing he said is, this is the word of Moses for us today from God. And then they jumped in. And he said, I figured whatever they were doing was probably okay. There was that honored tradition that... You could wrestle with the Bible 
in community and figure out what it meant for you in your day and in your time. In fact, Rabbi Akiva would go on to say that every verse in the Bible has 70 faces. 70 is a symbolic number. It just means endless. Like, how often shall I forgive? 70 times 7, Jesus says. It's just boatloads. And what Akiva was saying is every Bible text can be interpreted again and again and again. And it comes alive in each generation. And so it was their honored practice. Now, I know that seems a little strange to a lot of us. We've often used the Bible to close off discussion rather than to open discussion. We've often used the Bible to put in somebody's face and tell them that they're wrong and we're right. Rather than to actually engage in dialogue and say, what does this verse mean for us today? Some of you may remember years ago, there were people that put a bumper sticker on the back of their car. And it goes like this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That's a wonderful bumper sticker, but Jesus would have never put it on his donkey. Well, first of all, he couldn't afford one. Second of all, that's not how he saw the scriptures. Jesus gets on the Sermon on the Mount and says, you've heard this, now I'm telling you this. He kept the discussion open. One of the real hotly debated issues in Jesus' day, they knew they were supposed to love their neighbor, but they're trying to figure out, who's our neighbor? So Jesus raised that. Somebody said, who's our neighbor? Jesus weighed into the debate and said, well, there was a man that was walking along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus knew that the word of God wasn't to close everything off, but to open us up to what God wanted to say in our day, in our situation. But the problem is we live in such changing times, such uncertain times, that we go to the Bible for certainty. We want the Bible to shut out every other possibility but just one, and we'll go with that. But Jesus wouldn't have seen it that way in his world. The Bible opened up a world of possibility so that we can together pray and debate and struggle to figure out what God wants us to do. Jesus would have used the Bible to open up the world, not to shut it down and to close it off. Because we may have a need for certainty, but what's God need? I think what God needs, and this is from Dallas Willard, I think he's, he's right. God needs grown-up children. Children who can be mature enough to figure out what to do in any given situation. They can run through the biblical stories and texts and they can figure it out together about what that might mean in their day. God doesn't want robots. Anybody old enough to remember the Stepford Wives? You know, women that you'd marry and they'd do anything you want them to do. It obviously, was not a true story. But the goal wasn't that you would have robots. That's not what God wants. That's not what anybody wants. God wants people who are mature enough, together enough with each other, that they will figure out what it means in their day, and they will apply it and live it. Now, let me give you a few cautions, though. First of all, the rabbis and Jesus, of course, as our rabbi, we need to know this, would say that the first and most important meaning of any scripture is the, is the plain meaning, the one that's obvious. So when it says don't commit adultery, that's pretty obvious. You go with that. Uh, you obey that. Uh, when it says do not murder, that's pretty clear. You don't. But it's interesting. You can even see in the Torah they start to debate, well, is it ever right to kill? Is there ever a situation in which you would take another human life? Well, there's war. 
Well, in the middle of the night, someone threatens you and your family, and you're either trapped, it's them or you. The Bible engages then in this discussion. But don't forget that the obvious meaning of the text is the main meaning, and not every meaning is in bounds. That's why we pray. That's why we're a community. I mean, it's not appropriate to say that anyone who doesn't watch Selection Sunday about the NCAA tournament is not keeping the Sabbath. I might believe that. Or, since the Bible says don't mix dairy and meat, then the best meal is probably ice cream all by itself. That's probably not a right interpretation. It doesn't mean anything goes. But the first thing, know this, the most obvious meaning, the meaning that people have held for generations is probably the primary one, and we need to make sure that we're living up to that before we go to other situations. Another thing is this. I think fights in the Bible in our day usually end up One side accepts the Bible's authority and the other doesn't, but they'll go ahead and fight you. And finally, they'll just say, well, it was written a long time ago and it doesn't matter. That's not what Jesus and the rabbis did. They believed that every apostrophe, every and, every the, all of that was inspired by God. And because the Bible was God's inspired word, that's why you struggled to get it right. You don't want to mess up something so important as the very words of God. So the second thing is, if you really don't believe the Bible's authoritative, all of this is just kind of a waste of time. It's only because you believe the Bible has direction for your life that you pray about it, you struggle with it, you discuss it. Another thing I want to remind you is that the point of the Bible is God through Jesus Christ. The point of the Bible is not the Bible itself. Let's say you get on 35 And you start driving, and you see a sign that says Austin 70. Are you in Austin? No. That's just a signpost. The Bible is the signpost to our life lived with God in Christ. The goal is to live life the way that God wants us to live life, and to love God and to love others. And the Bible is our guide to do that. So what I tell people is if you're studying the Bible and it's making you meaner and nastier, then you need to study with somebody different the Bible. You need a different group, a different coach, because it should be helping you live life more fully and abundantly. But it is meant to be studied, not just to be dispensed mouth to ear. There was a struggle that's involved, and with the struggle comes the blessing. Um, Richard Rohr puts it this way. He said, Some people get to a shore, but they worship the wrath that takes them to the shore, and they miss the joy of playing along the shore. The the point of life is our life with God and each other. And the Bible's that vehicle with the Holy Spirit that gets us to that shore, but the point is the shore itself. Who's God calling you to be? What does God want you to do? That's why you're studying and praying to get to that point. And then lastly, the point is never the debate. The point is never the doctrine. The point is never the belief. The point is, what are you going to do with it? This is what Jethro says to Moses. Teach them God's decrees and instructions so that they will know how to live and know how to behave. Jesus would have known what was known for centuries before him, that the goal is to live the way God wants. And you can have all the right doctrine and belief in the world, but if you're living wrongly... It's of no use. In fact, I can figure out your faith and belief system by the way you're living your life. Show me your life and I'll tell you about your faith. 
It's not the other way around. So the goal is to live the way God wants, and that's why we study. That's why we pray. That's why we come to the Bible together. Soren Kierkegaard tells a story a couple centuries ago about a poet philosopher geese, a, a goose that comes among geese, comes into the barnyard, starts teaching the geese about the joys of flight and the wonder of life outside the barnyard. He said, don't you know that our ancestors were on beaches and hills and in open fields? Don't you know that our ancestors, other geese before us, have seen the fullness of the earth and life? And then went on to say, and why do you think you have wings in the first place? You were meant to soar. You were meant to fly, not to stay in this barnyard. And they loved it. It was a great talk. Many great talks. And one day, the poet philosopher Goose left. But they kept the memory alive. They formed study groups to study what he had taught them. They, they identified his doctrines and they began to, de- to learn them and debate them. But they never. They never left the barnyard. And they never flew. The purpose of the Bible, I'm convinced, is not to cage us, but to help us and teach us to fly.